When I was teaching about 12 years ago, I was one time, one day I was teaching and I was talking about art history and I was talking about like, oh, this artist did this and they were using absinthe and this artist did this and they died of a heroin overdose or this artist (laughs) made this work and also died of alcohol poisoning, whatever. They all had, they all seemed to have some story that went with them of some sort of drug use, addiction, overuse, like all kinds of different problems. And this little, little student just sort of timidly rose her hand and was like, is it necessary to use drugs to be an artist? And of course, my initial thing is like, of course it is, but that's, you know, that's a horrible answer. So, and I've always been thinking since then is like, is it necessary to be creative? And I don't know an answer to it. So that's sort of a question I'm posing to all of you to get started with this. Yeah, I'll go. I mean, I think absolutely, definitely not necessary to take drugs to be an artist. And I think it's a dangerous cliche and one that comes from a lot of privilege because if you can't run your life and you're relying on other people to take care of your kids, to pick up the mess around you, to, you know, conduct your relationships, then yeah, you know, that's a that's a bad position. And it's and I drugs I have a problem with the term, but psychedelics have been extremely helpful to my life and my practice. But I think this idea that it's necessary to take drugs is very problematic and destructive. And there are so many artists, like you're saying, who died of a heroin overdose, died of alcohol poisoning, and whose practices are cut short because they're not operating at their highest potential. So that's my perspective. Yeah, I mean, I've written about this a lot, particularly in the context of figures like writers like Coleridge and De Quincey and composers like Berlioz. You know, if you look at these people's lives, you know, these are the figures that we think of writing about opium, particularly in this case, and Berlioz writing kind of opium, you know, opiated fugues into his operas and De Quincey making an entire lifestyle out of this. How are they actually using drugs. I mean, the reason I've chosen them is because they all used opium, as most people in the 19th century did. Berlioz was like very, very highly strung. His ideas kind of for the symphony fantastique emerged in this period of kind of hypomania where he hardly slept for days and weeks. You know, if he was using opium, which he did, as his father did, he was using it to kind of calm down, to come down from his art. And I think the same if you look at the effects on, I mean, it pretty much killed the sort of literary and poetic voices of Coleridge and De Quincey. So when we see artists and we see them using drugs, this assumption that they're somehow getting inspiration from the drugs seems to be to be misconceived. They're using the drugs to manage their lives. And one of the reasons their lives are hard to manage is because of the creative de- you know, component of their life is kind of running out of control. So I think rather than glamorizing drugs as the things that give people visions, you know, they actually often have a more banal role in artists' lives as just a way of coping with a very unusual kind of job. I'm going to speak through my experience. I'd say drugs of all types are are, are very romanticized and, and appealing to a lot of young artists. I remember I, you know, the first two books I read when I got into college were 
Fear and Loathing by Hunter Thompson and then Junkie by Bill Burroughs. And, you know, those characters are very charismatic and lived very chaotic lives. And I lived in San Francisco where the access was, the access to drugs was plentiful. It was cheap and it was supported. There wasn't really a, a stigma. And what I, from my experience, it, everything in my life supported the drug use, which you know, I say drugs. And then if I want to specify psychedelics or stimulants or, you know, barbiturates, whatever it is, research chemicals, associatives, I'll do so. But well, I, I owe so much of my career to the use of drugs and putting my life in complete chaos to this day, that's that's mostly what I do now. I mostly work with cannabis companies and make art for cannabis companies and now psilocybin companies now that's legal in Oregon. But what I noticed in 2016, my life was in such chaos and I had really no meaning because every day was a different drug. Every day was a different party. I, I wanted to break away from that and, and get a job and get health insurance and, you know, take care of my parents and, you know, I'm, I'm 27. What am I going to do when I'm 37? And so I, I, I got sober and it was, it was so difficult to create art. It was so difficult to work. I, I had no idea why. And then I, I, I realized that it was a positive feedback loop because I had spent so many years with this cycle of, I do drugs so I can be inspired to work and I work longer so I can make more so I can buy more drugs, so I can do more drugs. You know, there's that, there's a song, I do coke so I can work longer, so I can earn more, so I can do more drugs. It, it, I think it's it's so subjective. I, I think there's a lot of artists, at least in my community, that experience that and are still going through that. So I would say, I would agree with Lyndall, it's, no, it's not necessary, but it's it's going to, it's going to create a chapter in your life that's very unique, for sure. And what you do with uh, that gift uh, of having these psychedelic ex experiences, that's up to you. All right, let's take a step back for a second. I like the Lindell's idea of just sort of defining the term of quote unquote, like drugs, because I think each of us come from to this from some very different perspective. I've done lots of mushrooms, LSD. At, at one point in my life, I did a lot of heroin and cocaine, though admittedly neither heroin nor cocaine were very helpful for my art practice. Smoked pot a lot, done microdosing recently. So like I've had a, basically like the list of drugs I haven't done is probably much longer than the list of drugs I have. No, wait, that's wrong. I got that reversed. But anyways, done a lot of drugs in my lifetime. And it's affected my artistic practice very differently at different times. And this is also something that I've noticed too. Which, and, and then, of course, these days there's pharmaceutical drugs. So, like, are we including the use of Xanax in this conversation? Or what, you know, what, how are each of us defining sort of the term drugs in this case? So, if you eat a really good piece of salmon, you're getting, you know, a lot of amino acids to your brain. I'd, I'd assume that makes you function better. Is that considered psychoactive? You know, it, is chocolate theobromine considered psychoactive? I, I, I understand, like, at least in the States, there's a huge stigma in a lot of areas towards drugs because we have different schedules and, and they're illegal federally. And so it's it's a lot, it's a, it's a really punk rock thing to do to take drugs. So I guess that's where I at least 
I personally get my definition of drugs is the, the thing you're not supposed to do. I almost feel like I'm, I'm on an acid trip right now th- thinking about like, well, is theobromine a drug then? Cause it's psychoactive, man. You know, <laughs> I think drugs has, have a very, is it, the term is sort of derogatory. And for myself, in terms of my creative practice, what has been helpful is plant medicines and I've taken them under very different circumstances to taking drugs. I've taken them in ceremony, very well cared for, mainly with a shaman who has years and generations of experience. Not that I think that that is necessarily important, but the the plant medicine experience is very different to the drug experience I would say, and certainly in my own case where I have also taken drugs in adverted commas, but I, I think that the term drugs is just sort of immediately quite derogatory and, or, you know, it has a, it has a negative connotation. It implies illegality and a certain amount of destruction. And as Brian says, maybe a certain amount of glamour that I was very attracted to in my 20s and to a certain extent in my 30s, but now to me seems well, kind of immature and and I'm definitely much more drawn. I mean, the glamour seems immature. I'm much more drawn to these things that are particularly about healing. My favourite psychoactive substance is ketamine and MXC. I've, it's a, truly changed my life. But all, acid, acid has done that for me too and DMT has done that for me too. And, and I kind of want to, when I talk about these things, I want to express all of those. So what I guess maybe... Maybe you should get to a point because I do agree that drugs are that using the term drugs is a a little a little it can lead to being destructive. So it's being specific and accurate. And when an artist says I want to try drugs versus I want to try ketamine, I want to try DMT because these reasons. I mean, I've, I've looked at the emergence of the term drugs, which is much later than you think. I mean, the word drugs goes way back centuries, but it, it, in the sense that we still use it for like, you know, drugstore or, you know, whatever, it just means kind of medications. The idea of drugs in the way that we're talking about it now, you won't find that before about 1900. And when you find it, then as Lindell says, it's almost always, it, you know, in its first occurrences, if you look at them, it's an abbreviation of dangerous drugs or addictive drugs or you know, drugs that should only be used by a physician. So it is packed full of kind of negative connotations. And it has been from the beginning. That, so that's, you know, it's very hard to say anything good about drugs because drugs is so obviously a word term loaded with pejoratives. And it always has been, and it's quite recent. So it's kind of, you know, it's a term that relates to our kind of recent Western cultural history. You don't find it in other cultures. Drugs tends to be... Those things that other people use, if you talk to uh, transcripts of conversations about this with people in the Amazon, Tucano people, you know, who use ayahuasca and who chew coca and tobacco, and they use a lot of what we call drugs. If you say to them, do you use drugs? They go, no, no, you know, because drugs are those bad things that people in the city use, like cocaine and bazooka, you know, no, no, we don't do that. So drugs is just a word that really people use to to project and to deflect. And it's interesting, you know, listening to everybody here, 
everybody uses the word psychedelics. And of course, psychedelics is a word that's all loaded with positive associations. Nobody says psychedelic drugs. That phrase has disappeared because it's kind of, in a way, an oxymoron. It's become, in the last few years, psychedelics. And that was a term that was also constructed much more recently, you know, in a conversation between Aldous Huxley after his first masculine trip with Humphrey Osmond. And the reason that they looked around for a new word was because all the words that existed for, you know, what was then just masculine and LSD, you know, this was before psilocybin or DMT or anything, all those words had been coined by psychiatrists. And they were words like psychotomimetic and hallucinogen, very technical, rather cold, clinical sounding words that connected the experience to mental illness. And Huxley's idea was we shouldn't be connecting this experience, and we should be connecting it to visionary experience and mind expansion. So in the same way that it's very hard to say anything good about drugs. It's hard to say anything bad about psychedelics. So in a way, you know, as Brian was saying, I think these terms have kind of sort of moral and judgmental slants baked into them. And in the end, we're talking about stimulants or we're talking about narcotics. I think, you know, if, if it would be nice if the term drugs evaporated. If it did, I don't think we would lose anything. I don't think we'd be un- incapable of communicating. We just have to communicate like a little more specifically. And I think we might come back to the sort of terms that were there long before drugs. I'm thinking particularly of the classical term pharmacon you know, which is something that is, you know, it can be a poison or it can be a medicine or it can just be a technique or something that produces, in this case, a kind of non-ordinary experience, in which case we're just talking about the experience rather than how we got there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it seems drugs is defined by institutions, which don't always have your best. I'm sitting here with a cup of coffee, which does give me a psychoactive effect. It's why I want to interrupt you all the time. And it's rotted my teeth. It's giving me stomach ulcers. It's not considered a drug. Sugar is the same way. I think also, I'm not entirely convinced that the term psychedelic is is always perceived positively. I'm interested that quite often when I tell people I've taken ayahuasca, they very quickly say, I would never do that. And I think, you know, if I say, I went to Vietnam. They don't say, I would never do that before I've even finished my sentence. People still have this real resistance to anything that, you know, particularly is called drugs, but, you know, also including to some extent psychedelics, although I absolutely take your point, Mike. I think one of the things about the term psychedelic, you know, it's a modern Western term based on modern Western ideas of the mind. It doesn't translate very well into indigenous understandings of what these plants do. The idea that, for example, they they speak to us and they have personhood and, you know, a kind of identity. You know, the term entheogen also is preferred by some psychedelic users, I think. To make the point that this is not, not just drugs, it's not just about getting your kicks, it's about a sort of elevated spiritual experience. And entheogen is, is means sort of manifesting the God within. I mean, I've, you know, that, that's a, a baffling concept to people from indigenous backgrounds, the idea that these plants should manifest a God within you. They are themselves an entity not a god but a person and you're now entering into a new mode of communication in which you can address them directly so i don't know if you've read carl hart's new book his perspective on this is 
is interesting. He sees psychedelic as very much a word used by kind of um, literate white middle class drug users to differentiate their experience from whatever black people might be having on kind of crack or heroin. I think there's something to that. Uh, The other part of his analysis that I think is quite interesting is that he sees it also as a way of avoiding the discourse of pleasure. You know, people who are into psychedelics, he says, often come to help to him and say, I'm not doing this to get high. This is kind of plant medicine. I'm doing this to explore myself or to heal or whatever. And, you know, Carl's response is always, what's wrong with getting high? You know, and when we use terms like medicine and sacrament, you know, in a way, I think what we're doing partly is eliding that discourse of pleasure or kind of uh, announcing that that's not the level on which we wish this experience to be judged. This just goes back to there's there's not really acceptable social behavior within the use of these substances. Entheogen or, or plant medicine can be, uh, I guess, somewhat offensive to an indigenous person. On the flip side, yeah, you, what's wrong with getting high on a, a psychedelic? I've learned from psychedelic plant medicines, ayahuasca and and cactus, has actually been about the incredible importance of pleasure and sensuous enjoyment and, yeah, that's actually been one of the greatest lessons. But But I would say that that is different to getting high, although I you know, I don't have an issue with getting high. I think that actually psychedelics can kind of really challenge our ideas about these things. And also, I mean, we have this attitude in the West, you know, we have to work hard for everything. And that also can be very challenging for people in terms of having, you know, these revelations and clarity from psychedelics. And, you know, no, we should have worked harder for that. So I think it actually raises some really interesting things about pleasure and enjoying ourselves and and work yeah and what's your target you know i recently deleted all my social media partly in due because i i get so many messages from teenagers and high school students who you know ask you know what drug should i take first and i always kind of give them the same answer is i i wouldn't suggest you take any drug I, you know it's that's a personal choice and it's subjective and you need to be accurate you need to target what you're after and that may or may not involve drugs or it's like we were talking about earlier before we were recording. It's, it's so subjective, you know, acid can be a extremely spiritually liberating experience unless you're schizophrenic and peanuts can be a, a good source of nutrition unless you're deathly allergic to peanuts. It's, these are tools, you know, well, that, that brings up sort of the, the fact that, Lyndall, you brought up the, the sort of, well, I think many of you have brought it up at this point, the nature of sort of like the balance slash healthy sort of intentions of using any sort of, in this case, a lot of psychedelics. But I mean, there are also pharmaceuticals. Like, for instance, right now, I'm, I took a half a Xanax and a caffeine pill before I started this, because that's like this beautiful balance that makes it so that I'm relaxed and focused so that's how i do a lot of my podcasts because it gives me that right sort of balance in my life to be able to do things like this that i probably couldn't do under other circumstances so like that nature of like using any form of drugs for your creative practices in a healthy way and in a and a balanced way so like how is that important 
how how is how is what important understanding what substances do well understanding what's beneficial uh, see i go back okay i go back to this thing when i was a kid and i did some drugs and somebody said to me like am i running away from something or am i running towards something Mm, so okay. like is is the use of drugs in order to avoid something or is it in order to achieve something i mean i feel as an artist you need perspective i never finished art school because I, I there was no perspective it was just study there's comes a point where you just can't paint fruit anymore you know psychedelics i i like i said i had this romantic idea of being a hunter thompson character a bill burroughs character and it put me in that chaotic mindset and i really didn't get much work done in the beginning. It was just like, I'm going to take these substances and I'm going to go on a road trip and I'm going to suddenly have a semi-automatic weapon on the rooftop of LA and we're going to start a fire and, and we're going to, you know, <laughs> just uh, this chaotic life. Then that translates into my work and it, you know, DMT and ayahuasca, there's a lot of people who do ghetto ayahuasca in San Francisco where you're, you're just ordering the ingredients online and then doing it in a basement. What I see from that is like people experience such hell. And when I, I took a uh, ayahuasca, I experienced this, this horrible dysphoria and I, you know, I just saw all these night. And when I, when you get out of that, you have a greater appreciation because it's kind of like a near death experience. And so you, all the problems you thought you had are, are, are just so benign. And you can move on with your life. You know, I, I think artists know what they want a lot of the time without knowing. They want perspective. And psychedelics in particular are, are definitely going to give you some perspective. I think I'd go a step further than that and maybe a whole lot of steps further than that, although I definitely agree with perspective. But for me, the, the biggest and best thing in terms of my art practice and in terms of the rest of my life that ayahuasca has given me, ayahuasca in particular and, and also cactus to a certain extent, I haven't taken so much cactus, but enormous clarity, increased self-esteem. I've just gotten over sort of little neuroses but also bigger trauma, which means that I just know what I need to be doing and making with a level of clarity that I just did not have before I took ayahuasca. And so in terms of, you know, that that's a kind of gift to the creative process that can't really be quantified, I don't think. And then there are also sort of lots of other things that, I mean, sometimes ayahuasca solves very clearly and very practically a particular problem that I'm having with my creative practice. It also can be very motivating and in the in the weeks after suddenly I'm able to do things that were, you know, a kind of challenge or that I had a block to, you know, maybe going back to a project that I was like, ah, oh, don't make me go there. And then I just find myself sitting there working on the project, achieving things that, you know, a week ago felt impossible. But I think that sense of self-knowledge is absolutely yeah, I mean, I think it's a, such an important thing for an artist and ayahuasca is so good at giving you that sense of clarity and, and self-knowledge and self-esteem. It's so important that you you mentioned that. It's so important that you you brought up that you it helped you get through some trauma in your life. It just, it just shows the, the differences between 
you and I, I didn't have trauma when I started this. I wanted to, I guess, create trauma for myself. I wanted to challenge myself and create chaos and then overcome that. Cause I guess that's what the point of being human is, is you need an art, a story, you need an arc, you need progress. And it, it, I guess it just goes back to the, where are you at? If you're an artist thinking about taking drugs or, or what am I doing in my life? Think about where you were before you started experimenting, where you are now and where you're going and how do drugs play into that? I'm kind of interested in how this has changed really quite recently, you know, in the last 20 years, this has become, you know, people talk about their psychedelic or their drug experiences. It's become part of the text also that people work with. It's kind of hard to remember how recent it was, like in the 90s. The thing that I'm kind of following at the moment a bit is this stuff around the sort of 5-MeO-DMT kind of frog and toad smoking. And just trying to remember how back in the 19... 90s even this was completely beyond the pale Lindell, i don't know if you remember that cane toads documentary with these kind of uh, you know kind of slightly sketchy scenes of people smoking toads and you know california people were being arrested and imprisoned and losing their jobs for kind of keeping psychedelic toads in the 90s and now you know, it's like Mike Tyson and Joe Rogan and Hunter Biden. Everybody's talking about their toad experiences. You know, this thing that and well within our lifetimes was just the kind of nay plus ultra of total degenerate. This is what happens if you take drugs, kids. And now everybody's talking about this as being, you know, kind of their, their, their spiritual breakthrough. So I think one of the things that's happening is that people are now talking about their drug experiences and particularly psychedelic experiences because I think this has kind of you know budded off and become its own cultural category and my last book on mescaline I was sort of spent time with the Native American church and with the Wichol in Mexico what really struck me there is that there's there's quite a strong presumption against talking about your experiences on peyote it's like you know, why would you do that? This is a private gift. The peyote speaks to you directly. And what would be your motive for sharing that? Are you trying to kind of build up, you know, your esteem in the eyes of other people because, you know, you're telling them about this amazing experience you've had? Are you trying to influence their experience? You know, and I always think on DMT when people go, oh, yeah, I took the DMT and I saw the machine elves. And I kind of think, no, actually, that was Terence McKenna's trip. That was not your trip. You know, you've had this supposedly very deep experience and all you're doing is kind of parroting, you know, somebody else's kind of uh, slightly controlling sort of attempt to colonize that space. So I'm a little ambivalent about, you know, this new thing of talking about psychedelic experience because I think we need to recognize that it's coming, coming out of a particular Western cultural moment and um, it's not necessary. You know, it's it kind of has the sort of, you know, guise of authenticity. But actually, you know, I think there's something inauthentic about it also. I, f- I find that super interesting, Mike, and I, I take your point. I'm part of a, a group in Berlin of women who meet to talk about psychedelic experience. And it's so interesting, the difference between the way that women talk about psychedelic experience and when I've more often with groups of men talking about their psychedelic experience, which is much more like I took this and I took this and I took this. And 
and you know, and even amongst people who are trying not to boast and who are not, you know, are not particularly egotistical, there is still this aspect of yeah, yeah, boasting about what you've taken. And with the with the women, it's so much more focused on their feelings. And I take your point, Mike, that that's still an extent. I think that's still an extension of this very Western idea of you know talking about it, and it, as as an extension of talk therapy. But the way that the women talk about it is so different to the way that men do. So they talk much more about their feelings and also about their fears and their vulnerabilities around taking psychedelics. And I find that so interesting and, if nothing else, just a contrast to the way that the conversations that I have with men about drugs, which are are definitely a lot more, you know, egotistical in inverted commas, cliche as that is. But, yeah, really interesting, Mike, that, that the way that we... Yeah. Yeah, turned it into a sort of extension of talk therapy is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would rip my favourite psychedelic memoir for years is by Bette Williams called The Wild Kindness, and she is queer, female, autistic, amazing, amazing writer based out in New Mexico. And exactly as you say, Lendl, the way she engages with it, I think in a way this connects to the the primacy of the visual in psychedelic discourse. People talk, I mean, the very the term psychedelic, you know, in general culture refers to something visual and to a visual style. Usually kind of, I think, a really kind of kitschy visual style of, you know, fractals and op art and stuff that is only sort of very adjacent at best to the actual psychedelic experience. And I think that goes back to, you know, a very male scientific approach to describing psychedelics which always kind of leads with the eyes you know I mean from way back 100 years ago you know if you read scientific descriptions of psychedelics it's all I started to notice the effects when I saw the you know purple and green haze hovering around my pencil on my notepad and people jump straight to you know, these sort of visual descriptions of what's going on as if that's the experience. But I don't think it's a very good signifier for the experience. As you say, Lendl, there's so much else going on behind that that's much more interesting and much more imponderable and much harder to represent. Yeah, I remember in school, they said, if you take acid, you'll hallucinate forever. And I'm very disappointed that they lied to me. That, that can I, happen. I call that I, I, <laughs> I, I call that eye candy. There is such a thing as post hallucinogen perceptual experience. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I've taken so much more away from MXE. I don't know if you are familiar with MXE, but versus it, it's it's associated with aesthetic. People compare it a lot to ketamine. I did a lot of DMT to try and and I guess reach some sort of Western idea of nirvana or whatever and there's so much eye candy uh, what i what i call eye candy the fractals and all that and it's it's just so distracting and mxc and ketamine uh it got rid of all that eye candy and it was just it was just me and the world and and uh, i'm not going to get too into my personal experiences but it just really made the mind clear someone told me that psychedelic can be broken down into psyche the mind delos water to make the mind clear and i don't know if that's true but if that's a, the the goal for all this i I'd, I'd say getting rid of that overwhelming hallucinogen experience really helped me achieve that 
and I'm glad I'm not the only one, or I, I wasn't the first one to make fun of Terrence McKenna parroters. Well, that's an interesting point about sort of the the tradition of drug use in psychedelics, but in general, drug use throughout history in, in, that I, the, that I'm aware of, where a lot of people in the visual arts are emphasizing the visual representations of drug experiences and things like this whereas like Lindell and mike what you're bringing up is things about that the drugs are just ways to sort of reach to some emotional clarity or some uh, some, some uh, sort of personal experiential kind of thing in order to be able to then express yourself more effectively through your art in the and it may not have a one-to-one -one thing like your paintings are not a hallucination you had but they are an expression of a feeling that you had from that experience and to me that's very different from what a lot of people think of when they think of like psychedelic art or art being for by or about psychedelics yeah and it's it's almost yeah. impossible to illustrate a hallucination like i i made a piece while i was on dmt i had to duct tape my stylus pen to my finger because I thought I would drop it. And when I was creating sloppily creating this, it's not what I saw. There's no way I could replicate it. It was just kind of what I was capable of doing and based on what I was feeling. But go on, Mike, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I was just, just going to say the last exhibition I curated, well, when exhibitions were still a thing, was about in the 1930s at the Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital in London, there were a couple of doctors studying hallucinations and they decided to get a bunch of British surrealist artists to come in and be injected with mescaline and then draw what they saw. That was, a, that was which generated a whole load of material, most of which had never been exhibited. Some of it by people like, you know, Julian Trevelyan, who went on to become kind of quite well known. And it's very interesting looking at that because it's kind of, you know, pre-60s, the idea of what psychedelic is not so obvious. There were a couple of works produced there that we would look, now look at and go, that's psychedelic. But the vast majority of them we wouldn't. And that's because partly because, you know, psychedelic is a category that we've come to recognize and sort of, you know, self-reflexively work within since that time. But also, you know, creating art under the influence of drugs, of psychedelic drugs, is, I mean, if you define art broadly to include music and dance, I think those are the media, you know, in which you can really work under the influence very productively. You know, uh, visual arts are obviously really hard, you know, because you're dealing with muscle tremor and hand-eye coordination and perspective problems. I don't know if you know Stanislav Vikiewicz, the Polish avant-gardist in the 20s, who was the first person to do this with mescaline. And his work is great, I think, never bettered, because, you know, in his day job, he was a society portrait artist, worked incredibly fast, had really good line, you know, would do sort of six society sort of portraits a day. And then in the evening when he took mescaline, he could, he could work when he was really, really high. And you can see he's really, really high and he's really got it. But I think I guess the sort of iconic figure here is Henri Michaud, 
you know, Michel was very unhappy, you know, very dis, you know dissatisfied with the work that he produced. And I think it's it's kind of dull. I mean, it's very much like what you were talking about, Brian. He would, I mean, he was, you know, he was obviously a sort of old veteran, high modernist. So he'd done automatic drawing and stuff in the twenties, and that was what he tried to do on masculine. Just kind of put his pencil on the paper and make little tremory movements and see what you got. But I don't think it's I don't think the experience reveals itself visually in that way. I think. You know, and I, and I think that makes kind of, you know, drug-inspired art rather a diffuse category because when you tackle it head-on by going, okay, let's actually get off our heads on drugs and make some art, you produce something that doesn't, you know, necessarily look like you expect, you know, whereas a lot of other engagements with drugs are to do with more the material culture of drugs, the presence of drugs in the culture, you know, people looking at people on drugs or the artifacts and accessories that people use. So there's a whole lot of, you know, work which looks at drugs and what's they, what they mean and where they sit in our culture, which are not attempting to recreate the experience of being on them. Yeah. One of the experiences uh, with ayahuasca is that you have these incredible synchronicities and it's a, it's a common experience where you end up bumping into somebody in the street who, you know, you've been meaning to see for ages or find that thing you've been looking for easily, you know, in the days after you take ayahuasca. And that, is a, that facilitates art practice in really magnificent ways. I had the experience where leading up to a ceremony, I was trying to make a photograph of the uh, the hanged man from the tarot and the deadline was coming and there were just, there was obstacle after obstacle and I was getting nowhere with it. And I went for a weekend away to take psychedelics and I noticed at the farm, which was far enough away from Berlin that it was not practical, that there was a hanging device that I could have used. And I commented on this to a young man who I'd spoken to before and told him about, I'm going to make this picture of the hanged man. And he showed me his arm and he had a tattoo of the hanged man. And he said, if you need a model, and I had not told him I needed a model. He said, if you need a model, I would love to do that. And so suddenly I had a model which I don't know how I was going to get a model. And, you know, once I'd had this purely synchronicitous experience, you know, the whole picture fell into place. And so this is a way for me that psychedelics have facilitated my work, although I've never certainly never tried drawing on psychedelics and, and, and with my practice have no particular interest in recreating the, the visuals. But there are other ways in which there's incredible practical outcomes from psychedelics and I do know people who have fully formed ideas while they're on ayahuasca and that hasn't happened to me yet I must say I am hoping that as I've cleared all the other stuff that there will come a point where I'm just having ideas you know that I can then fulfill I mean just by going to the wherever you were to go to the ceremony it created the the larger opportunities for you to create your work that you may not have known otherwise no, I mean, I was talking about the synchronicity. So it's a synchronicity because, I mean, this guy didn't need to say if you're looking yeah. for a model, you know, the fact that he actually had a tattoo and an interest in the subject is, you know, the chances of that are fairly, are pretty small. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the phenomena of synchronicity is something that is definitely very widely spoken about, certainly amongst people who take ayahuasca. So 
it's a matter of synchronicity. Should I explain that further? No, I, I completely understand. I, I was, I, you know, opportunity and in, in synchronicity. I mean, you're more likely to have great, you know, greater chance of synchronicity if you put yourself out there. So I, that's why I use the term opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that, I, I completely agree. That is extremely synchronistic, fortuitous, however you want to describe it. That's pretty cool. Because I wasn't, I certainly wasn't saying, hey, does anybody, you know, is anybody here interested in modeling for my work? And I wasn't really even thinking about the work because, you know, I was, you know, I'd taken ayahuasca and I was trying to, you know, deal with other things. But, but when somebody actually says to you, I'm really interested in the hanged man, do you want a model? You know, there's a kind of next level of chance there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I've got a question that's been sort of plaguing me because we, like Mike, you brought up things about like the traditional sort of art styles that are sort of visually representing sort of psychedelic. So we got our surrealism, some of our op arts, these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Have anybody had any sort of um, sort? Of, I want to say like ill effects, but like basically, how has the the industries that you work in? Because I say this because Mike, you're more of an author, but mm -hmm. even within the that creative field, has being sort of open about say utilizing drugs as a tool in your sort of arsenal um been helpful or hurtful in your careers because i could imagine a lot of people like being like oh that's just druggy art or oh that's just psychedelic research not legitimate kind of things like, so like has anybody had any sort of negative uh feedback from the the industries certainly in terms of in terms of sort of the art world, which is something that I'm kind of a visitor to, you know, I kind of came into it working with people like Welcome Collection as a sort of subject expert. I found this, there's a lot of institutional resistance. I mean, I did a, I curated a season of around intoxicating plants at Kew Gardens, sort of Royal Botanical Gardens there. And I guess if you look at the the people who are involved, usually my experience is that the curators the, the curators and the people who are working directly with the exhibition are really, really excited to do this. The institutions, especially if they're kind of rather staid and august institutions, are very, very nervous about it. And the audiences are huge. You know, you just, uh, you know, anything about psychedelics just draws enormous, huge crowds. So all those three dynamics, I think, are in play. Yeah, it's quite the opposite. I've been sober for three years because I have a child. But uh, when I stopped making art under the influence, no one wanted it. You know, I don't know how much everybody knows about me. There's a project I'm most I'm known for is a project where I make 20 different paintings every day for 20 consecutive days. And in 2016, I decided to get a little cute and do a different drug every day. And so it, there's a gimmick there. I mean, to me, it was just a personal project that I wanted to do for a long time because I thought it'd be fun. And then it just kind of blew up and I was getting tons and tons of print orders out of my studio apartment and I just got way over my head. And out of the 20 days, there was a couple that I didn't take because of health reasons and doing 20 drugs every day was a little rough once uh, there was a bunch of people that wanted to buy the whole series of prints. And then once they found out that I didn't do all the drugs, then they, they just ghosted me and blocked me. And, you know, and there's, there's like this Hollywoodification around 
around it because it you can market it so much like that gimmick and as an artist go, transitioning from making this type of art that has an audience and then trying to change you know there, there's social media plays a big part in this trying to market yourself as a psychedelic artist is is very lucrative in a lot of ways and it for me it was trying to branch out and but there's always this this temptation to go back to creating psychedelic or in the states it's called visionary art yeah you know? that's right <laughs> and i'm so sick of that term yeah like all these you know influences people want to take a little off the top and getting engagement on social media it all just muddies down a, a natural piece of art that feels truthful and and i still make art today and it's inspired by nature and being a father and i don't post any of this i appreciate creating that art so much more it's so much more meaningful to me and it's partly you know psychedelics have forged my personality uh, it's never i'm never getting away from it so all my art has some sort of psychedelic influence even though I'm not on psychedelics. So, so yeah, I guess to circle back to the original question, it's, it's been quite the opposite for me. Everyone wants me to do drugs because there's such a high demand for this type of art that's done. I don't want to toot my own horn, but done well, proficiently, I suppose. And they want me to be a character, you know, they want me to be Hunter Thompson and I'm not Hunter Thompson. They want me to be a chaotic celebrity figure. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I find as well. The reason I, one of the reasons I've ended up writing about drugs a lot is just because it's a sexy subject. You know, mm -hmm. I mean I'm coming out of the sort of history of medicine and science. So it's, you know, but there's loads of stuff that interests me. Drugs is usually the easiest sell. It's also a very rewarding field to stay in because you kind of get to cherry pick across the most interesting bits of everything from art and literature to ethnography and neuroscience and spiritual experience and kind of cultural history. So uh, it sounds like a specialism, but it's not. It's kind of a license to roam across a lot of, a lot of territory. I'm interested, Brian, in your 20 Drugs project. And I was wondering whether you found yourself taking inspiration from those works from the drugs or from the way that the drugs are perceived and you know what the balance was there and which you found actually produced kind of sort of took you to a visual work and which you found kind of didn't and you had to use them as a peg in some other way sure well every day was different and and you to understand the project you have to understand the perspective like i always talk about set and setting which is the most important thing I mean, not just creating art, but also doing drugs. I was in a very controlled setting. I had just gone through a breakup where, you know, a relationship of 10 years was cheating on me and she left me and it was horrible. And, and then I was, I was trying to say goodbye to this life. I wanted to move on. And this was kind of my goodbye to this life. And so a lot of it was like, you know, first day I took butylone, which it, it's like a stimulant I'd compare it to like Adderall and MDMA and it was just, which isn't psychedelic, but I, I remember all the times that I, I used it as an aphrodisiac or, or when I thought I was going to have a fucking heart attack. And so I, I, I was just thinking about my heart and the cardiovascular system. And that's what I illustrated over the course of six or eight hours. And 
versus DMT, which I, that was what I was capable of doing versus alcohol. That, that was the day David Bowie died. So I, I got drunk and made vector art of David Bowie and a lot of it's memory based. A lot of it was mood based. When I took cocaine, it was like, Oh, I remember all those great days of going to Miami and LA and doing cocaine and listening to disco. And so I, I, it it was more of the, the culmination of all experiences I've had on that particular substance. Right. I was thinking of Stanislav Vitkiewicz, who did this in the 20s, the 1920s, I guess we now have to say. He co-signed the drug on all the portraits because he regarded the drug as a creative partner and a collaborator. So it would be Vitkiewicz and mescaline or Vitkiewicz and cocaine. And, you know, he had kind of uh, codes for all of them. So I guess that would be appropriate in some circumstances, but not in others. That That's exactly what I did. I hate to say that I don't know who that artist is. I feel so ignorant now. I, I don't know him either. And I will put a link to all these people that everybody's quoting in the show notes. I mean, I wasn't trying to be original. It was just something that I wanted to do to, because uh, I, I had years of these experiences and, and I wanted to, to move on. And I, I felt like it would have been a waste of my life if I didn't, it, it didn't culminate into something. And so the project is, is meaningful to me and it was meaningful to the friends who were there while I was creating it and who were there for those experiences. Lindell, any sort of insights on how the industry itself has sort of uh, accepted or not accepted or been embracing or not embracing? No, I would say the question, the answer is no, no insights. I, I haven't had any experiences either way really. I mean, this is really the first time, this is the first time I've really spoken publicly about it. So maybe that's why. Hmm. Fair (laughs) enough. Yeah. I guess I would, I would say that the one pressure I do have from publishers is to situate myself in there, to write about my own drug experiences more or to write about kind of my relation, drugs and me and what brought me to this point. And that's, I'm kind of not really, as you can probably gather, I'm not really interested in engaging on that level, you know, and that's why I found it interesting to move outside, you know, the sort of Western media world into other cultures where it was, you know, a lot of my lack of interest in that was reflected back to me much more closely than it was in my own culture. So yeah, I mean, there's a bit of writing about drugs, you have to be kind of the drugs guy, and you're either okay with that or you're not. I would say when I started this in the 90s, you know, a lot of people were like, you're crazy writing about drugs, your name's going to be on some police list, you're going to get arrested, you know, I mean, you know, that's just a marker of how much the culture has changed, but it didn't seem to me to be a problem at that point. And as I say, it's a way into all kinds of interesting material now. But what I've really noticed in the last 20 years is this default assumption that if you're writing about drugs, you're in some way writing about yourself. And in fact, you know, I guess my practice is pretty much the opposite. I'm trying to take myself out and write about it. That's much more interesting for me. Yeah, I can't say how refreshing it is that I'm, I'm on a panel of, of people who don't have this holier-than-thou religious uh, perspective of drugs and throw out all these platitudes. I can't tell you how many podcasts that I, I didn't make because somebody was like, psychedelics have taken us out of a sleep. And, you know, it's just, it's very refreshing. That's all I'm trying to say. We all have a very unique, subjective, and to my interpretation, honest 
approach to this. No, one other thing that I've noticed about drugs, like when I used to smoke pot, let's say in my twenties and thirties, a lot of it was sort of like the social aspect of it, the the sort of the network, the the group community that's built by it, the tribe that you get around it. Like even Lindell, you brought up like the the people that you do, the group of women that you talk to about your experiences, things like this. So like, I wonder how much of the the nature of sort of using drugs is trying to find a tribe or a community or a group of uh, people, supporters, whatever that are like minded versus like you know because a lot of people think that a lot people who use drugs are trying to drop out of society like they want to be anti whatever but in to a certain extent i think that a lot of it is is we want to be part of a tribe and we're trying to find that tribe that is like-minded yeah and also i mean not necessarily about tribe but just a connection and because the connection can just be you know for during the ceremony and and you know the the next day, it's not necessarily that you want to kind of gather with these people always, although I have definitely made good friends from people that I've met in the psychedelic community. And I also find it really fascinating the different cultures that surround different drug communities, even within the same drug. Most of my experiences have been in Berlin or more to the point outside Berlin and gathering people from all over the world and and that actually really is all over the world. There's usually some South Americans, quite a lot of Europeans, you know, South Americans, Australians. It is a community in my experience that does gather people from all over the place. And here we talk about a better world and we talk about things that we, we want to do to, you know, yeah, make the world a better place. And, uh, and I've also taken it in a taken ayahuasca in Australia with lovely people who were great, but the conversation there is much more likely to turn to drugs I've taken because Australians love to talk about drugs they've taken. And, you know, and that's not entirely fair. There are all sorts of other kind of cultural aspects. I mean, we were also in an amazing house with the bush, you know, outside the window and all these plants and creatures, you know, within metres, which is not what happens in a barn in Brandenburg which, you know, where you're in nature, but, you know, by comparison, not. But, uh, yeah, I think also the thing that happens with these plant medicine situations, these ceremonies, is that you're also very often really connecting on a very profound level. And an example of that I would give is that we'd taken ayahuasca. I was not feeling it really anymore, and I was about to ask for another cup. And this girl started howling, crying very loudly. And this this is not so uncommon in in ayahuasca. And it, you know, if you weren't on ayahuasca, it would seem, you know, absolutely alarming. But it passes quickly. And you know, this woman was letting go of a lot of emotion, and she would have felt a lot better the next day. But her howling brought on the ayahuasca again, and I vomited. And so there was this connection between this woman who I'd never met before and her emotional release and then I purged and so this is another you know this is a kind of different level of connection beyond kind of following your finding your tribe and I mean I certainly can't explain that by any means that what is going on there and you know I appreciate that it might sound absurd to people who haven't experienced it but yeah there's there's a, another level of connection and also you know with psychedelics I mean this was my experience taking acid 
when I first did when I was 17, also was, you know, you have this sense of connection and, you know, we are all one and I'm connected to this log that I'm sitting on and I am that cloud. And, you know, there's this sense of connection is incredibly important with psychedelics at least. Okay, recording again. Going back to the original question. Hey, you got to sober up, man. You got to you got to get this together. I know it's my Xanax and my caffeine. It's it's yeah. off a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's one hell of a. Yeah. So the original question was: people take substances to get into a community, and I would, uh, from my experience, that's one hundred percent the case. At least coming from psychedelic San Francisco, where it's got a long history of psychedelic use. I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's that's where you, you find your tribe. And God, there's there's so many communities and they shift. And in my experience, it started off with this kind of fringe Burning Man community where it was a bunch of weird artists. And then it, it, it about 2011, 2012, it got really, I guess, dogmatic. And there's a bunch of new age, you know, white people who made rules to your psychedelic experiences and it, it was really oppressive and everyone started talking about you know higher vibrations and if you if you want to smoke meth and you that's a lower vibration and but it's okay to take Adderall and you know it's it's all these weird rules and eventually it got so big in the festival culture festival promoters weren't really promoters they were drug dealers and it became a facility, you know, where 60,000 people get together and they're trading drugs. And so now there's a business behind it. And that business model promoted, you know, it, it kicked out all the, the holy men and the bad actor shamans. And it just became about hedonism and chaos and consuming. And, uh, you know, a lot of people got into that positive feedback loop. I think because... Drugs are illegal, you know. It help makes the yep. thing more initiatic. So, how do you mm -hmm. start taking drugs in the first place without finding your scene and without finding your people? So, I, in my experience, as someone who's you know still, uh, who, I don't think my drug taking patterns have changed very much in the last forty years. You know, probably because I know I've never kind of been you know wildly excessive or sort of out of control but also i've never actually stopped taking psychedelics and smoking pot i mean i you know i enjoy them too much to do that this had a big boost from michael pollan you know sort of suddenly in his 60s discovering psychedelics and going you know wow these drugs are actually just perfect for somebody like me at my time of life which of course was <laughs> what everybody thinks at their time of life you know when they discover psychedelics and I think one of the, you know, that kind of initiatic thing and the way that you make a kind of make a scene when you discover drugs is the most positive part of that. In another respect, I think encountering drugs at the time that we do and in the way that we do in our teens is just kind of the worst time really to encounter them. I mean, most people have their sort of formative and most intense drug experiences at a time when they haven't really figured out who they are yet, at a time where they don't have many resources, they're kind of buying stuff from sketchy dealers because who else sells to teenagers? They don't have private space of their own to take it. So you're negotiating all the most kind of risky and negative and problematic 
problematic stuff at that time. And I think, you know, maybe the kind of drug community that you form is one of the benefits of that. And then I think, as Michael Pollan found, the older you get, you know, they're much less of a, you know, drug experiences, you know, even very intense drug experiences are much less existentially threatening because it's at a time in life when you pretty much know who you are. And in a way, there's like a slight tug of nostalgia for, you know, maybe those days when I might have gone completely crazier behind me. But that's a bit like traveling as well. You know, when you travel in your teens, you, you know, you're on this adventure and you might just suddenly have an experience and stay in this place for the rest of your life. You know, the older you get, the less likely that becomes. And, you know, I think that's the case with new experience generally. So, uh, so yeah, I think, and then I think particularly, you know, once you get your established networks, and particularly once the digital age came along, I think there, you know, there are more and more people now who have drugs as part of their lives, but are not part of that kind of gang or tribe or network that they were back in the day when they were younger, or when life was kind of, you know, more physically networked. Yes, something that I think about a lot is, as I said, like I don't, I haven't really done, let's say, psychedelics in particular in a long time, but I find lasting effects from them. So, like, I did a lot of uh, LSD and mushrooms when I was probably, let's say, twenties. Yeah, probably my twenties. I'm now forty-seven, but I still, and to this day, am thinking about some of the psychological repercussions, and I. I want to be clear, I don't mean this in a negative psychological, I mean in a positive, in, in that I, like during that time when I was doing them, I, I saw insights into myself, my relationships with others, these kinds of things that have, have, a, have had long lasting effects, I believe in a reasonably positive way towards myself, towards my relationships with others and these kinds of things. Is this something that anybody else sort of sees or ex has a, has experiences with, or is it, was that just a myth? Oh, absolutely. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, for myself, there's so many long long term effects, and I mean, the fact that ayahuasca in particular is associated with resolving trauma, and Gabor Mate is a really interesting person to think to listen to or read his perspective on that I mean to be able to resolve things that I just didn't think I was ever going to resolve and that the you know the talk therapy was only well it was only ever going to get me so far and ayahuasca it's not a cure-all and I don't and you know the fact that I'd done all the talk therapy and the self-help previously certainly meant that you know I was ready to shift those things but those are long long lasting changes and and I don't think I would have been able to resolve those traumas without the ayahuasca. So for me, absolutely, there is most certainly long-term benefits and I could list any number of others, but that one's sort of the really profound one. Yeah, and I think if you persist with these, with you know, if you, if you carry on using these things, you tend to use them with the people that you love most in the places and situations that you like most and they become this thing that you do when you want you know a, a really great experience and something that reminds you of everything that's kind of positive in life and of everything that you've learned you know it's you know and that's you know they become in a sense less revelatory I mean I think the first few psychedelic experiences in particular that you have that you know there are big things that you recognize like for example like 
a whole lot of what you thought was going on out there is actually going on and being constructed in here. You know, I mean, that's kind of once you've got that, you've got it. And I think people who, you know, take psychedelics two or three times, you know, kind of get that. And after that, you know, it's really a question of whether it's continuing to give you positive experiences and good times and keep good connections coming, you know, whether social or creative or whatever. Yeah, it's definitely giving me given me the tools to when I'm sober, I, I'm able to look inward at my own emotions and and be honest and ask myself honest questions and I'm able to analyze them and I didn't have those tools before you know ego got in the way fear got in the way I might realize that I'm not as cool as I am as I think I am and you know, I see this with my brother he, he you know he he wants to be perceived as being this cool dude and he bullshits himself in that way and when he's faced with the fact that he's not as as awesome as he thinks he is, then he has a freak out. And I can't say I would have been any different. And now I'm able to look at myself and look how I can improve and and recognize that the at least the point of my life and a lot of people's lives is to to be imperfect and to progress. Otherwise, you're if you're perfect, you're you're what you're Jesus. You know, <laughs> it's not a life, and, and that appreciating that beauty of that of life and, and your journey and understanding that accomplishing your goals and accomplishing things in your life is wrought with a lot of of pain and suffering on on your journey to accomplishing those things and when you get to that goal it all that pain and suffering is seems all worthwhile it's totally worth it because you're living honestly and with meaning Okay, both Brian and Lyndall brought up sort of trauma, pain and suffering, this kind of stuff. I have my own history of traumas and all these kinds of things. I wonder whether or not, like, from your perspectives of your life, so like, is this something that, like, <laughs> are we attracted to doing this because of our pain and suffering? Or is the pain and suffering the thing that sort of pushes us in this direction? Like, which way does that well, work? I want to clarify, I, I'm not... I don't have trauma when you want to achieve a goal when you, want to, when you want to do something that is difficult there are a lot of people and there's a lot of instinct to say well there's all of these hurdles that i have to overcome and that is going to be painful i'm going to have to sacrifice these things and then people don't do it oh certainly one of one of my traumas is parental pressures so sure, and societal yeah. pressures like that's one of my certain ones that I, I believe that I was expected to do certain things in life, kind of thing. And, anyways, that's that's my personal yeah. problem. Yeah, I just wanted to I just wanted to clarify that I, I you know, I'm I'm not coming from a, you know, I, I haven't experienced a, a lot of trauma in my in my past that I'm trying to heal from. Yeah, I mean, look, I wasn't ill either. I had suffered from a certain amount of anxiety and depression along the way. And, you know, since taking ayahuasca, don't suffer from any of those things. But, I mean, I first took ayahuasca out of curiosity. I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was going to solve my trauma. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, I had no notion of all the amazing things that would come out of it, I couldn't have possibly imagined it. And also because the things that come out of it are so incredibly diverse. And I also have a lot of physical pain. So while I didn't, ha while I haven't had 
significant psychological problems my trauma manifested in physical pain and I don't think I had any notion whatsoever that ayahuasca might help me with that and ayahuasca has helped me enormously with that and after 20 years of trying all sorts of therapies but I never considered that ayahuasca was going to help me with that and I I yeah I think it was largely curiosity that that motivated me to do it in the first place knowing that you know I was going to be vomiting and that it had this therapeutic potential but I didn't imagine you know the extent to that therapeutic potential I work across the sort of two fields of on the one hand sort of psychedelics and on the other the history of kind of mental health and asylums and psychiatry and and in the, in that world, I know a lot of mental health service users and artists and activists. Um, they seem to me to be two completely separate worlds. When you go to a kind of psychedelic event, a screening of a new psychedelic movie, and everybody's, you know, it's all the same people up on the screen, and then the audience going how great psychedelics are and how this is a revolution in the treatment of mental health. And it's like, where are the patients, you know? We you know where are people with actual serious mental health disorders? They're completely absent from the psychedelic conversation. And then, you know, if I'm in some kind of mental health service users, community centers, you know, amazing, amazing spaces of which there are very, very few these days. And, you know, and people have thought very, very hard about what mental illness actually is and what to do about it. And, you know, the subject of psychedelic therapy never comes up. Nobody's interested. You know, if you raise it, people go, yeah, yeah. It's more more doctors with more pills to fix our broken brains. They've decided, you know, that, you know, mental illness is as far as they've experienced it. You know, it's sort of, it's, a, it's about trauma and it's about abuse and it's about them having shit lives. And, you know, what they're really interested in and really engaged in, you know, they're very, very skeptical about kind of clinical psychiatry. But what they really want to do is social. They want to make their shit lives a bit better. They want to do peer to peer therapy. They want to have kind of resources that they can use to improve their lives. I found that interesting. I mean, most of the people, you know, one has to say, most of these sort of people are, in, you know, Imperial or Johns Hopkins, or the sort of neuroscientists who are telling us that this is a revolution in the treatment of mental illness. You know, it's important to understand that most of these people don't have medical degrees. They're not clinicians. You know, they've never treated patients. <laughs> so I think there's a little bit of, you know, I'm always slightly kind of sceptical about you know, and, and you know, and when you drill down, sort of, with those people, you know, it always kind of seems about like, yeah, you know, if we can sell this as like a really great psychiatric therapy, then I get funding for my uh, next brain imaging study, or it improves the image of psychedelics in society, and it helps our cause. You know, so you know, there are a lot of attempts to, I think, slightly superficially join the dots between psychedelics and the actual serious problem of kind of severe mental health disorders and mental health service users and I think but I think they remain to a surprising extent two separate worlds yeah what Mike what's your view if, if, if you've heard of maps mm-hmm yeah yeah I've, I've, I've met Rick a few times he's a very mm -hmm. you know over the years he's a very charming man they're very helpful and have been a very good resource he kind of says two things simultaneously one is you know that the goal of my life is to get FDA licensing for psychedelics so that they can be prescribed as therapies. But then, you know, in conversation with him, and he's, you know, 
he's a very guileless person. He's very honest. He'll say, actually, I just want everybody to be able to take psychedelics. So mm-hmm. I think those two goals at the moment are in conflict because the whole idea of medicalizing psychedelics, you know, this is all kind of, you know, people like sort of Compass, this is all these pharmaceutical companies who are getting sort of millions in startup funding to develop proprietary psilocybin. You know, I don't quite see why you need like clinically approved psilocybin if, like, since mushrooms grow everywhere, why can't we just grow our own mushrooms? Why are we monetizing this? You know, yeah, <laughs> the psychedelics are really cheap and it works. Yeah, it works. Why do we need a study? That's that's what's going on in Oregon right now. Yeah, exactly. So I think at the moment, those two goals of medicalizing psychedelics and making psychedelics available, you know, sort of to, to you know, through some uh, form of legal regulation are in conflict. Because of course, whenever, you know, the sort of clinicians and people running these trial studies are asked, they say, oh, well, of course, you know, psychedelics supervised by medical professionals, you know, is a completely different thing from what they call recreational use, which is what we all do, right? I think in a sense, the opposite is true. I think Western clinical medicine has a lot of you know, assumptions baked into it, which are extremely unhelpful for psychedelic therapy. You know, if you look at the way that people use psychedelics for healing, either in indigenous cultures, or among us recreational users, you know, there is no kind of medical professional in the middle, there is no doctor patient relationship, we don't wear eye masks and headphones and have our trips controlled. I still think you're kind of far more likely to have a transformative healing experience in a muddy field at a festival than you are in some kind of antiseptic clinic. And I think it's really Western clinical practice that is going to have to change very substantially to incorporate something that is in its terms, actually faith healing. Yeah, you know, it's exactly the kind of thing it's set up to exclude so i think the idea that you know psychedelics have to be sort of you know panel beaten so that they fit within kind of 21st century clinical psychiatry seems to me completely the wrong way to start i couldn't have said it better myself i really question whether medical practitioners are the best people to be controlling this situation at all and whether even if it's safe to be doing it with medical practitioners in my experience i've been i've done it with shaman who have come from the jungle from long traditions whose parents were shaman etc cetera, etc cetera, and they're controlling the spirits and you know doctors don't even believe there are spirits and you know that's the safety that we need in a psychedelic experience and you know I've also had incredible care in those situations but I I really question whether the medical profession is qualified to oversee these things and undoubtedly there's an enormous amount that could be achieved by the medical profession with psychedelics but I'm not at all sure that they're the best qualified and that their expertise is really that helpful yeah I think we can we can evolve our own you know western cultural forms yeah. of this I don't know if you've seen films like from shock to or films about the use of ayahuasca by vets with PTSD and you can see when you look at those you know those are group sessions and you know somebody who's suffering from PTSD is introduced to them and met by another military vet 
you know, somebody who says to them, I had this same experience that you've had, and it was terrible, and it was crippling. And when people told me that taking this weird psychedelic jungle potion was going to cure me, I thought they were crazy. But trust me, it works. And those are the two things you need. You need someone who's shared your trauma. And you need, you know, someone who's also shared your therapy. You don't need a clinician. At least in the States, it seems like the pharmaceutical industries are trying to become legal drug dealers. You can get prescription ketamine now mm -hmm. and you can get it for pretty much any reason. I asked you about maps because I was unsure of like what the, what the goal was. It kind of seemed like, are we, it, you know, is this for recreation? What, what is, what do these sessions look like? And I, I don't really understand. It's, it's more about getting funding and so they can create this, this drug that what's going to happen with it, it's going to be sold to a pharmaceutical company or is someone, you know, who has is the patents, you know, so that that's all. It's just, yeah. it's, it's a little concerning to me that they're that pharmaceutical companies are creating a market. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, the licensing thing involves jumping through those FDA hoops and that involves, you know, randomized control trials and placebo testing and demonstrating that, you know, the effect that's being produced is being produced by the medication and not by what they call extra pharmacological variables. Well, extra pharmacological mm -hmm. variables is what we call set and setting. You know, so uh, <laughs> the whole process seems to be absurd. You know, it's the process that you would go through for antidepressants, which you just administer and, you know, kind of study like yes. you do mass cohort studies. You know, then they work whether you believe in them or not and, you know, and whether you have a therapist or not. Psychedelic seems to me, in medical terms, a completely different proposition, you know, from, you know, our, our yes. normal pharmaceutical drugs. But, of course, it has to jump through the same hoops that all the rest of them do. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had military vets who were, you know, they saw people die in front of them. They've been hit by landmines. And I've seen in front of me take MDMA and just become completely new people. And I mean, that was just in my house, like, and, and sharing that experience as friends. And it's just a weird thing to, you know, I mean, you're going to go to Walgreens or a pharmacy and you're going to pick up your MDMA prescription so that you can deal with your trauma and then go to work. I don't know. But it's interesting with MAPS that when they started doing MDMA trials, it showed amazing promise in couples therapy. Unsurprisingly, you know, if you have an MDMA session and it doesn't work out, then there's kind of probably not much point in going forward. But then Rick kind of realized that, you know, marital strife was not a medical condition and this wasn't going to push the thing forward. So he chose military vets precisely you know to you know for the sort of pr value towards the more conservative market of showing this isn't just about kind of druggies it works for like really straight conservative people too and then they picked psilocybin mm -hmm. as opposed to anything else because everybody knew that lsd was a street drug and mdma was a street drug and psilocybin sounded more sciencey you know so this whole process you know the you know the diagnoses that have been chosen the drugs that have been chosen have all kind of had one you know big eye on pr and funding there's no as far as i can see you know, medico-scientific reason for using psilocybin as opposed to anything else. And of course, now everybody's starting to synthesize their own psychedelic analogs, which are very similar to um, all the other ones except patentable. 
So it sounds to me like there's a lot of stuff about set and settings. Like when I think back on my times, it was often like when I've done it in sweat lodges, I've done it with a group of very close friends kinds of things. And then I've also done these kinds of things in situations that I was uncomfortable from the get go. And the experiences were horrible. So like, the nature of like not just the experience of the drug itself but the people you're with the location you're with your comfortable your comfort level all these kinds of things i feel like are incredibly important to for lack of a better word have a good experience or have a good trip kind of thing absolutely and there's things you take for granted too i've been i'm very i hate taking drugs in a club i hate taking them at even festivals in some degree I, I'm most comfortable in a in my home where I can control the music. I have a, you know a nutritional meal that it's not too heavy if I need it. I have hydration. I have everything. I can lock the doors. I can adjust the lights. All these things. There's one time where we had some friends over to you know I think we were doing two five I, which is a like a I want to say it's a two CB analog. It's a really intense psychedelic. But uh, we didn't clean the bathroom, and that, that's all it took to make people freak out. <laughs> it's just these little things. Is your is your space clean to your level of comfort? You know, because anything can make you spiral out. And maybe, maybe that spiral out's a kind of an awakening. Like shit, maybe I should fucking clean my bathroom more. I look for my experience with taking medicinal psychedelics just actually really having good care is important and because people do freak out and they you know certainly vomit and you know all sorts of purging experiences and and you know it can be very extreme certainly at the very least there can be a lot of crying and you want to feel really safe and yeah so so that is super important and if anyone yeah I mean I yeah, there's all sorts of aspects, but that just that real sense of being very safe and being able to be very vulnerable, I think, is really important. Yeah, I guess drugs are psychedelics, particularly Stanislav Grof called a non-specific amplifier. So you know they're not intrinsically sort of pleasurable or unpleasurable. You know, if you're in a great situation, they're really thoroughly enjoyable. If you're in an uncomfortable or difficult situation, you know, it makes it kind of horrible. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's everybody finds their own level. And I think it's very important that everybody should be allowed to do that, you know, not to be too prescriptive about set and setting because different people are comfortable in different ways. But I also think it's a transferable skill. You know, once you've been, you know, in that sort of heightened state, you just have a better sense of what makes you comfortable and what makes you uncomfortable. And that's something that you can kind of carry on through the rest of your life. Okay, so this has been fabulous overall. Uh, any last little sort of insights or anything you want to flesh out? So we'll go around, start with Brian. Oh, thank you. Good people do drugs, bad people take all the credit. You can visit my website, cybri.net. All my artwork is free. You can download it and print it. You can start a company. Enjoy. I don't care. P-S-Y-B-R-Y.net. It's free to everybody. Just download it. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. I'm Lyndall Walker. I'm a largely visual artist making photographs and installations mostly. And you can see my work on lyndallwalker.com. And Lyndall is spelled L-Y-N-D-A-L. 
Thank you, everybody. It's been a really great conversation. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's been excellent. Nice to kind of meet you all. Yeah, I think it's been a, a great illustration of the importance of kind of free thinking around drugs and psychedelics. I think it's very important to have your own experience, even though these are very intense and very, you know, personal experience. They're very easily colonized. They're very easily colonized visually. You know, you could have this kind of peak thing, that, you know, and people would think, oh, this is just like some CGI, whatever. Well, it's no, it's not. It's actually something that's unique to you. So just remember, you know, don't think too much about what everybody else has said about psychedelics or the things that you're supposed to see. This is about self-exploration. So I would always enjoin people to you know, not to be doctrinaire and to not lay down the law about how psychedelics are supposed to work, because they, of course, one of the things about them is whatever you say they are and the assumptions that you approach them with, they will become baked into the trip. So for me, it's kind of a slightly zen exercise in absence and emptiness on that level. Beyond that, I have nothing to say except I'm at mikej.net and I have books and articles and stuff, so you can find more there. I hope you are enjoying and learning from these conversations as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated as well. We'll even take a critical comment too. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website at wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners, Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge, in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.